presenting John Gabriel, the undisputed king of stuff. What is up, podcast? This is your favorite podcast host, John Gabriel, on your favorite podcast. What's it called again? Oh, the king of stuff. The king of stuff. It has been um, rather crazy few days here. Um, I don't know if you follow me on Twitter, but uh, Friday, stomach started hurting. Drank my morning coffee, hurt worse. Then it ended up hurling and noticing the pain was coming from my back. Ended up at the ER, kidney stones. So uh, I was at the ER for six hours. They uh, took their sweet time, but uh, the pain finally subsided. So I am semi-drugged up now, actually. it's I'm not on the hard stuff anymore, thankfully, because I have not had pain since uh, early Saturday morning. Uh, so I have survived. My poor wife, however, has got a gum graft surgery today. So this is like sick bay at our house. Um, I had that done twice, I believe, a couple years back. Unpleasant. So um, also, I wanted to let you know, if you're in the Columbus area, I'm going to be speaking there. This Thursday. So what would that be? September, September 22, September 23, something like that. I don't know. I don't really pay attention. Yeah, uh, Thursday, September 22 is when I will be doing that. But I'm teaming up with America's Future and uh, their Columbus, Ohio chapter this Thursday. We're doing a live podcast recording of the King of Stuff. It's going to be me, Hannah D. Cox, Chad Aldous, and Logan Colas of the Buckeye Institute. We're going to be talking about school choice. They decided that I was the essential element in bringing this uh, school choice brain trust together. So there is a link in the show notes if you'd like to sign up for it. There should be room available. Um, tickets, they're going like hotcakes because once they announced me, it was like, forget about it. It was all over. But it is uh, from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. And it's being held at Wild Goose Creative in downtown Columbus, I think, on McDowell Street. So check it out and uh, please say hi if you'd like to. Or if you want to just hide in the back, I'm fine with that too. I'm all for the introversion thing. Well, last week, as you know, I interviewed David Limbaugh, interviewed him on his new book. Later that same day, I recorded the interview I am presenting today with uh, his cousin, once removed, something like that, Stephen Limbaugh. Double the Limbaugh. That is uh, the value that you get from subscribing to the King of Stuff. He isn't mostly about politics, although he delves into it. He does soundtracks for several conservative movies. But he is a composer and a concert pianist. Hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Got to be very careful with that word. But his compositions have been recorded by the Russian Philharmonic Orchestra and Valentina Letizna. I'm not good at uh, pronouncing Russian names. His debut album, which came out a few years ago now, was called Pants. It was the top-selling album of contemporary concert music on the Billboard classical charts. So um, he's a really interesting guy. And we got to know each other at the Lincoln Fellowship at Claremont, which lasted about 10 days. And I was like, oh, this guy's great. I just want to chat music with him. A hail fellow well met, I must say. Also, I'm throwing in a few musical numbers from him at the start, in the middle, and then at the end. Uh, this first one here is called, it's from the album Pants, so I'll buy that. You can get it online. Millennial Suite 2 Transfiguration. So, Stephen, play us in.
Mr. Stephen Limbaugh, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for having me. What, what pants are you wearing? Uh, well, this is a non-video Zoom call, so I can't just... <laughs> Yes, uh, that was the feature. We were both at Claremont Institute at the Lincoln Fellowship, and there were um, rather fanciful pants to be witnessed on uh, Mr. Limbaugh. That's right. That's right. You know, Elton John has like his, uh, you know, his big glasses and Liberace had, you know, his candelabra. And so I just wear, um, you know, uh, wonderful pantaloons. That are- <laughs> right, right. So as you're reclaiming that Um, now, your background is really interesting because, you know, you hear the name Limbaugh, you're like, oh, he's he's probably a talker. He wants to write books or something like that. Um, You are doing something much more important than politics. I always say music is far more important than politics because I've always been, I don't know, kind of a music nerd, horrible at playing instruments. And so I just sit there as the passive listener. But how the heck did you discover the piano? Did you, you know, did your parents force it on you from just after the cradle? Well, here the um, my dad played uh, and we do have the whatever it is, the music gene uh, in the family and also lots of family members that are very interested in music, whether they pursued it seriously or not. Uh, uh, They are like you. They've got good taste. Right. Right. (laughs) <laughs> and so the uh, uh, the thing that really got me into it was that I was um, I was for whatever reason I took to it very easily. Meaning I could sit down and I could play once. So I my parents tried to make me do lessons whenever I was young, the Suzuki method thing. Whenever I was a five or six year old, and I did not like it at that time because what was more interesting at that age, you know, throwing M eighties at. <laughs> that's cool stuff, you know, ninja or whatever. Uh, But then whenever I turned 11 or 12, something like that, um, I, one of my friends uh, came over and he played some rendition of, you know, Phantom of the Opera or something, a simple version of it. And I got really jealous of the attention he was getting, see? (laughs) (laughs) And uh, I said, you know, dad, I want to, I want to start, I want to start playing again. I want to take lessons. But then once I started that, I was playing Chopin Fantasy Impromptu after less than 18 months. I mean, I, I, I took to it very quickly. Uh, I was good at it with very little effort. And that's something that people who are younger, that's, that's a wonderful thing, right? Right. Right. It, like a video game. You don't have to really <laughs> be, it's hyper intelligent, very good at a video game to maybe win it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, uh, piano was sort of similar in that way. Right. So, uh, but then once I was 12, 13, 14, then I noticed that, you know, I'm probably not going to be playing in the NFL or the MLB <laughs> whenever I grow. And uh, what else is something that I could do to um, uh, be attracted to the fairer sex? And, uh, <laughs> music is the obvious inroad to um, those sorts of hearts and minds. Right. Right. Definitely. Got to find your angle. It is interesting how certain instruments and certain people just match up. I know my dad played guitar. I was surround. I still am surrounded by friends who play guitar. I took professional lessons. I did teach yourself. I tried acoustic. I tried electric. It just didn't click. I could play songs, 
but it was like this weird object in my hands that I had to trick into making the sounds I want. Um, and same with piano. We had a piano in our house and it just didn't click. And then I got behind a drum kit and it was just instant. And for some reason, the saxophone, I picked it up and I could play songs like, I don't know, 30 minutes later after never playing a reed instrument. So certain things just click with you and it's like, oh no, this is just natural. And it sounds like that's how you and the piano met. Right. Yeah, that's, it, it, it really was, it really was the case. We did have a piano in, in the house because like I said, my dad played and he played pretty well, actually. I mean, in, in college, he had a recording of him with his piano instructor doing the, uh, like the Schumann concerto or something like oh, that. Oh, wow. Like, can't be a total slouch and and, right. and be able to cover something like that. Um, and, you know, it's not like he was playing like Van Cliburn would play it, but it was, I mean, it was good. I remember hearing the recording. And so, um, so also you, you sort of get these things by osmosis, right? If you are surrounded by classical music or jazz or rock music, if you grew up listening to John Bonham drumming or something like that. Of course, you you might have more of the inclination because a lot of the learning in this process or what you might take to it is uh, imitation, right? You're yeah. imitating the things that you're hearing or seeing or whatever. And I think that's probably true for most of the arts. Um, but uh, in music, especially, if these are things that you really heard frequently and perhaps done well, like you had access to good recordings or, or whatever it was, or somebody even explaining to you what's going on, um, that, uh, uh, that's important in, in, in the process of, of getting good or, or being perceived as having talent, let's say. <laughs> right, right. Well, you started um, just, you, you started playing really young and just pursued it with a vengeance. So did you, um, I believe you went to a conservatory um, right. That's right. Um, so the the education part of this is is one of my passions because uh, as a high school dropout, I'm a disbeliever in certain types of education. <laughs> that was um, one thing that um, uh, got me bonded close to Rush was that growing up, I hated school just like he did. And I asked him basically to help convince mom and dad to let me drop out of high school so I could just pursue music full time. And right. that was really important because uh, I was also playing trumpet at the time. Right. And the uh, town I grew up in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, at the time it was a town of 30,000 people, 32,000 people, something like that. And, you know, there's not a lot of opportunities to play in really good, strong ensembles. Right. Uh, there's a university there. And so I had good private instruction, but I wanted to level up because I had also gotten accepted into the Interlock and Arts Academy in Michigan, which oh, is- Oh, yeah. A, that's, a, that's a famous one. Yeah. Summer, the, the summer program. Yeah. And, um, once I was there, I was like, look, I've got to, I mean, I've, I, these are the people I'm going to compete against if I want to go to the New England Conservatory of Music or something like that. Right. And, the competition is stiff. I didn't have that kind of exposure being in a, in a small town. And most of the other people who are from small towns also, you know, kind of got um, rattled that it's like, hey, you know, this is you, you've got to um, you've got to try to get every advantage you can. So dropping out of high school allowed me to go up to St. Louis twice a week, uh, play in the youth symphony up there and get private instruction with um, one of the uh, St. Louis symphony um, trumpet players, a guy named Tom Drake, who's the 
assistant principal. He might still be the assistant principal there. I mean, he's been there a long time. And so uh, uh, then going to the conservatory, I went, I opted to go to the conservatory in Kansas City. strong program there for piano, especially actually, because one of their uh, doctorate students had just won the Van Cliburn piano competition. That was in 2000. Oh, wow. Uh, Stanislav Udenich. And so uh, they had also attracted, you know, some very nice endowments from the uh, uh, Kaufmans and whatnot. And the conservatory there, it's also the only public conservatory program in the country, or at least it was at that time. So it made a lot of sense for me to go there. But then, of course, I dropped out after three years and joined a rock band and moved to Los Angeles. So, <laughs> Now, what was that like? Was that just like, look, I'm not going to be a Boston Symphony isn't going to hire me. Um, so might as well try something a little more popular that might build up my name. Precisely. Um, I had also gotten into composition at that point because really in the symphony world, you're going to be capped out at a certain salary and the position's in for a trumpet section in an orchestra, you're talking about three. Uh, sometimes they'll bring in another fourth for a large symphony, like a Mahler symphony or something like that. But generally you're talking two to three trumpets um, and you have to wait for somebody to retire or pass away for one of those positions at a top. Right. To, and, and that goes throughout all of the sections. I mean, my gosh, but then you're also competing. It's not just like the competition at Interlochen, but you're also competing against the last 20 years of Interlochen type people. Now, yeah. all the Juilliard, they also went to Eastman School of Music. They might actually know people in the orchestras because it's former. I mean, there's there's not a great deal of nepotism, but it definitely plays a factor like like any business, I suppose. But um, anyway, that it just made more sense, though, also is that um there's a performance aspect of rock music that you don't get in the concert hall in the symphony hall. And I really, really liked that a whole, whole lot. Um, the energy of playing in uh, a place like the Viper room on the sunset strip, there's just no other energy like playing a dirty rock club on a, at the 10 30 slot on a Friday or a Thursday night or Saturday night. Um, it's, it's cool and it's fun and it's, raw youth emotion. You don't get that play in Brahms, right? Right, right. <laughs> so um, anyway, so I, so I did that for a while, but uh, this is sort of getting into a little bit of the history of, of where music has gone over the last 20 years. But um, there's a, uh, the Sunset Strip was sort of a hopping, hopping place to where a lot of big bands had come out of there. Um, but then uh, a pay-to-play system had been introduced, so it was only the bands that could sell enough pre-sale enough tickets, which that just meant that high school kids were getting their parents just to pay the $1,000 for the 30-minute time slot. Right. They, they considered it cheaper than therapy in L.A. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was their prerogative, I suppose. But uh, that, um, you know, that lessened the quality of the music, and then by 2008, nine or 10, the DJ swept in and then rock bands were dead. And, right. so, and what do I do? Well, 
uh, I got back to my classical roots, uh, started a YouTube channel because that was starting to pop and then eventually got discovered on YouTube. You know, this is sort of like Biebs, right? Just a Biebs. <laughs> discovered on YouTube as a, as a very, very good pianist uh, and composer and then got into doing film scores and whatnot. So that's the, uh, that's the quick, quick and dirty version of, of my history. And that's where I am now doing film scores and still writing concert music. And before the pandemic, I was still doing concerts. I did um, a couple concerts in the Trump White House in the East Room. Well, in the East Room and then in the foyer. Uh, and so um, playing out when I can, but there's, uh, I mean, the pandemic really shut down the concert scene significantly. It was a real bummer. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it was uh, it was strange because I think a month before everything started locking down, my wife and I went to see went to see a band and uh, I was there for the hipster local band no one's heard of. And my wife was for, you know, the popular sellout band that was the main attraction. I'm I was way too cool for that. But it was such a bummer because like a month later, when everything locked down, I was looking through my Instagram I'm like, oh, yeah, I used to see live music and now <laughs> nothing is happening. Right. Right. Yeah. It's um, it, it really hurt a lot of musicians. I'm not sure how some of those guys that were that are in some of those indie bands. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know what they did. I mean, maybe they were just getting getting handouts from the state of California or something. Right. Living off government cheese, baby. Right. And so who, I, I don't know how they did it. I haven't talked with a whole lot of those guys um, recently just because I'm, I'm so not in that world anymore. I would, I would like to know more about that world because I haven't been in it for seven or eight years. But um, uh, like I said, there's just so many of them now that, that really aren't in bands and they don't have a big social media presence. So I don't even know where to look. It's not like you can go to Pitchfork magazine or you certainly cannot go to Rolling Stone. Yeah. Yeah. Listening to. The Rolling Stone people will tell you what you should think about politics or something. They don't even talk about music. Yeah. And whatever gets and then they'll do one music thing on Lizzo or somebody who was, I don't know, got famous a couple of years earlier. And you can see on E! Entertainment Television all the time. It's like, OK, this is you're not helping me discover anything new here, folks. Right. Right. There's, there really is no um, there's no curation except maybe what you can you could maybe find some stuff on Twitter. But you have to spend a long time filtering through uh, social media posts to be able to, or maybe TikTok. There's a whole world of music TikTok stuff, but so much of that is pop because of the dance right. element thing. Um, but, uh, you know, while we were at the Lincoln Fellowship, we actually did discuss um, one of the Gen Z artists uh, that um, my sister-in-law had discovered and, and introduced me to and you <laughs> you had this great it's like okay Stephen. well my daughter is is very very cool and she's um let's send her <laughs> send her this artist and, and i'll tell you what whether whether my daughter thinks she's cool and your daughter sent back brah, like paragraphs of how she's the biggest poser ever and I, like, yeah, I don't even know the cool artist uh, yeah my daughter the hipster oh yeah what a sellout and going on I'm like okay i've i've created a monster here because uh she uh learned that from dad's knee me going oh, what a bunch of sellouts once they went to a major man, I couldn't listen to him anymore. <laughs> that's that's really funny. 
but um, yeah, so I, so I don't even know. So maybe you can um, you can peruse her uh, your her playlist history or something like that. You can. Yeah. It, and it's pretty great because, yeah, she'll make playlists for me and I don't like all of it, but man, I like a lot of it. So um, it's it's good to have an ear on the ground for that. And, and yeah, the problem, too, with a lot of the music press like, you know, online, probably the big daddy is Pitchfork. And for four years, every review was in this dark time of descending fascism and Cheeto brained Hitler. And then it would just be a kind of a half review of a song, but it was mostly this person emoting about how difficult their life is living under the regime of Trump. And I'm like, can you just tell me about the music? Who does it sound like? Well, I like it. That's all I want to hear. Right. Like what, what are they trying to say? Is there, am I, if I pick up this single or whatever, am I going to, hear something new or have a different perspective or walk away with it um, still in my head later on that week. Yeah. And I'm, I'm glad that their uh, title track, I love you baby is actually a subversive plot um, against the Republican party and promoting social justice. But I think it's just, he's into a girl. And so he wrote a quick song. Yeah, I, I don't know. They, they, they tend to overanalyze and you can always tell those writers too. When I was in college, um, there was a cool little indie store um, selling CDs and stuff at the time. And now they're all vinyl, but they're like, Hey, we'll give you a store credit if you write reviews for a little zine. And I went, Oh, this will be great. And I stopped after three reviews. Cause I'm like, this is horrible. They're like, no, it's really good. People like your writing. And I'm like, all I'm doing is like using the most complicated adjectives I can use. I don't want to be basically reprinting a thesaurus. It's just like the best review is just like, here, listen to it. Kind of sounds like these guys, <laughs> what I would tell a friend. It's like, still listen to it because I don't know if you'll like it or not. Everybody has different tastes. Right. Right. Yeah. There's, um, and, and it's kind of sad because, um, the, I would say that, uh, you know, if the old, indigenous music of America from a hundred years, 150 years ago or whatever was jazz and blues and, um, you know, Appalachian folk and these sorts of things. If there was a contemporary American indigenous music, it was, it was happening in the, uh, uh, eighties, nineties, like grunge and this sort of thing. And then, um, in the two thousands, uh, less so. And those are things that I, borrow on as a as a composer because i feel like just like george gershwin would borrow on um like apply classical techniques and a classical aesthetic to jazz music and be able to make an elevated let's say piece of art um with it i've been trying to do those same sorts of things with what i would think would be america's indigenous um music which would be you know the use of computers synthesizers all of these things that um rock bands use uh and i like to incorporate those because right now if you look at let's say um a polish edm artist or a russian edm artist or a french one or a korean one they're all going to sound exactly the same mm-hmm they are, it's completely homogenized. And so if you're writing your review, John, uh, it sounds like everything else out there. <laughs> right, right. That would be what it is right now, right? It sounds like the last time I, you know, the soundtrack is I walked by a pool in Vegas. They, I could swear they were playing the same song, even though it was 10 years ago. Uh, yes. that And, and uh, I think I even saw something recently where, um, you know, music is stuck because that, 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 that Ed Sharon 
song, The Shape of You, has been the most popular song the last three <laughs> years in a row. Right, right. Than anything else. I mean, and my- every time they come up with the re, 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 remastered Beatles release of fill in the blank and it's number one on the charts. I'm like, guys, there, there's newer stuff than the Beatles. They yeah. were great for yeah. their time. But uh, can we move on a little bit? No, no. The answer is no. They are <laughs> never going to stop. They will stop beating that dead horse when it stops spitting out money. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah, it's the only thing uh, record companies can make money off anymore is uh, remastering everything. Wow, this is totally different. It sounds about the same to me. So um, where in the U.S. have you toured uh, playing playing your piano selections? Uh, So um, primarily uh, my touring was done with the rock band. And so we would do these big loops coming out of Los Angeles, um, you know, head north to Vegas, Colorado, Utah, uh, upper Midwest, do a big circle back down um, through Texas and then coming across uh, Arizona. That's like the classic tour in a van, indie band life right there. We had a Sprinter van with a trailer hooked up to it, a couple of roadies and a big road manager that once had to punch a guy in the face in Denver, Colorado, because he wouldn't pay us. Like it was- <laughs> You need the enforcer with you. Yeah, it was pretty awesome, like rock and roll. <laughs> Um, and not like we were some hard rock band. I mean, we were kind of, I mean, it's not like we were metal or something like that, but, um, you know, it's still kind of a, uh, of a, uh, of a dirty existence to where people do not respect basic contractual, (laughs) (laughs) you know, legal agreed upon items. Um, they just decide that, ah, we don't feel like paying you or here's, here's a six pack, you know, good luck on the rest of your tour. And uh, it's like, no, there is such thing as a minimum guarantee. And not only did we exceed that, we had people in the seats drinking at your bar. <laughs> yeah. And I, I remember hearing some story, like reading someone talk about the old days of rock and roll and Chuck Berry until he stopped performing when he was like, I don't know, 112 years old or something. He would need he would need it up front and in cash. And they're like, oh, no, we wired it to your companies. Like, I am not going on that stage until you put the cash in my hand. He wouldn't let anyone else handle it. <laughs> He would stuff it in his pockets, you know, put it in a kind of a hidden wallet that he had. He's like, I am here for the money. I've been ripped off too many times, folks. That's right. It, and it's, and it's, um, you only really learn that from experience because there were, there were many, many instances where we just didn't stand up for ourselves because we wanted to still remain good with a promoter or something. Right. You have to set your acceptable level of theft, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you if you do have it um, uh, too low, then then you're not going to get called back. I mean, that's just an unfortunate reality of of how Hollywood works, the music business or whatever. And and the, these aren't complaints. I mean, we we knew what we were getting into because there's a lot of really fun things that happen as well. But it's um, like I said, the the act of performing on stage at a rock concert is you just you don't get it unless you've actually done it before and it's incredible it's, yeah. it's the biggest rush ever um and so uh that's why but the other thing is you know now now that i'm older I, i'm not sure that i could do it 20 30 40 years like some of these bands just can keep on going and do like bruce springsteen i don't understand how he'll still do a six and a half hour concert right I mean, that's right. Does he not drink or something like something? Something has 
going on. <laughs> but he's able to do that and be the front man. I mean, I, it's not like you were the drummer of the Rolling Stones whenever, you know, you're not doing like crazy. <laughs> right. Acrobat. Yeah, l- living on the edge like that. Well, and what amazes me too is all these bands that I would listen to, say in the early 90s, they've all been doing these revival tours because with Spotify, nobody's buying their back catalog. They still have lots of fans in their 40s and 50s. So they're like, the only way we can get money is through merch and touring. And you see these poor bastards <laughs> stumbling on the stage. They're wearing fedoras to hide their bald spot and stuff. But I'm like, <laughs> dude, you're doing like 50 dates around the U S it's, you know, some UK band and they're still great. They're still out there doing it. But I'm like, that has to be rough in the olden times, like sixties artists, you would, you'd be expecting by that time in your career, you'd be living in a castle out on the, the countryside of jolly old England. And instead, yeah, they're hitting those same old clubs and uh, making a living. Right. Right. I mean, that that life did sound compelling of being in that castle and being able to drive your Rolls Royce into the right. I would have loved to have done that. Um. Those days are a little past when you had your uh, the official Led Zeppelin brand branded airplane to go on tour with. And yeah, I think I think those days are gone. Right, right, yeah. And and for music, that's really not going to come back because the way it works now is that um, you're not. Obviously, you mentioned you just mentioned the Spotify situation that Spotify doesn't pay. Apple Music really doesn't pay. None of the streamers really pay artists. Anything. They, they pay the labels, but yeah. they don't pay the artists anything. And so what you're left with is um, to make money in the music business. Is you're not selling music anymore. You're selling sneakers. You're selling a p- perfume. Um, Lana Del Rey, I actually know the, the story of this, is that her dad put up half a million dollars to help her get the right producers, some writers, marketing, uh, these sorts of things. And that half a million dollars doesn't get paid back whenever she signs a record deal or sells or gets a million YouTube hits or whatever. It was paid back whenever, uh, I can't remember the brand, but Macy's or whatever it was, uh-huh. gave her a $20 million perfume deal. That's whenever you get paid back on those sorts of things because, um, uh, you know, because she was, you know, a, a attractive female that could, um, you know, that the camera loved her and this sort of thing. And so her music videos were as much of a um, selling point for her as just her music. Now, I really like her music and all that sort of thing. But um, if you were to not pair the visual with the music, I'm not sure that it totally would have been the case that she would have been able to secure big brand deals. And from like her first videos, it might as well be one of those holiday uh Chanel perfume commercials. That's kind of how they look. That's how she was marketing. <laughs> That's how it looks. Kind of the, the sad, disaffected ingenue moaning <laughs> about how difficult her life is. And yeah, all these, but still all this romantic imagery and as well as modern imagery, it just really feels like those very stylistic um, ads for perfume or cologne you always see around the holidays. Yeah. The, the, the nostalgia is, I mean, it's a real thing. And, and because she was a millennial artist, Millennials really, really, really are into nostalgia. I mean, obviously, if you look at any Netflix programming or who's playing the Super Bowl halftime show or whatever it is, you've got heavy, heavy, heavy nostalgia on. Uh, I mean, who played the last Super Bowl? It was all these like old rappers. Right. right. I mean, how old how old are those guys? now? Is, is Snoop Dogg 60 now? I have no idea. Shows up in a suit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And, they had a couple younger guys come in, like um, uh, 
oh gosh, now I'm blanking on the name, but it's the. Uh, uh, yeah, the only one I remember was Snoop that he was going to be there. Right, right, and and Dre and, and Eminem came on. I think. Uh-huh. And, uh Gosh, it's the it's the Compton guy that's like always called the new Tupac, and I can't remember his name. I feel lame not remembering this but yeah, anyway, I do not know the point being is that um you know what are those guys selling up there they're, they're not just selling the music they're selling the sneakers they're selling the nfts they're do, they're they're doing whatever it is that they can to generate alternative revenue sources and it's funny because i um there was a thing that was invented in the 2000s once napster came around that was uh uh, it was called the 360 deal. And that was a new label contract that said, <laughs> if, uh, if you sign with us, we'll, we're going to have a 360 deal with you, which means we don't just take a piece of your album sales. We're going to take a piece of your merchandising, a piece of your, of your live show ticket sales, uh, a piece of your acting career, should there be one. I'm right. But it will be a, but we'll take a smaller percentage of each one, and of course that's absurd. <laughs> but you know, people sign these things, and they're no longer in the music business. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, but you know, that's um, you know, it's it's kind of a sad deal. But really, what where I where I see things drifting, and this is this is um, sort of uh, my my thought process is that you have to get back to uh, the fundamentals of a of a patronage system. And it has to be to the high arts, um, classical music or jazz or whatever that would look like, or even um, to some extent, film music, in that you have to have these, you have to have benefactors or you have to have it crowdfunded or, or whatever it is to get music of an experimental nature um, that's good, that is out there that people can draw upon from inspiration because that will filter down into the pop world and these sorts of things. Um, but just like you had um, Varez doing French electronic music or whatever that gets turned into stuff by the Beatles who wanted to be cutting edge or beach boys. And those recording techniques then eventually get digitized and turned into an MPC. And then you've got, um, you know, turntables and, and MPCs or whatever that, uh, birth hip hop. And then that gets picked up by guys like Trent Reznor and, and nine inch nails yep. who take, you know, a cool, like crazy punk Chicago scene that they get exposed to and then apply hip hop, hip hop beat making techniques to that music. And then you've got a band like nine inch nails who everybody in the industrial and sort of metal and hardcore world recognizes that Trent Reznor is like a genius. And what is he doing now? He's applying those things to films like the social network or uh, what was his, uh, anything with David Fincher he's been doing. And so, um, but you have to have that music of an experimental nature at a high level for the concert hall to filter down to beautify the world. Because right now people are borrowing from each other and nobody has any, there's, there's no looking up, Right. If I could use that as an analogy, none of the artists are able to look up. They can only look down and side to side or backwards. But if right. you're only looking backwards, it, then you're going to just sound like you're copying stuff. And that's not good. You can't just try to be the new Nirvana. Yeah. You, you, it's like, please drop on Nirvana. They're a great band. Or like, what was my favorite band from that era? Probably Stone Temple Pilots. Um, STP, like I want to be the next SPT. It's like, okay, borrow from them, but what are you going to do with like modern technology in the context of modern culture to be the next STP? 
that won't sound like you're just copying the guys. Yeah. And then I always love the turn too, when you get in on a good band early and it's like, Oh, okay. These guys are completely ripping off band X. Like in the light, late nineties, let's say everybody's ripping off the pixies, but then their second album, it's like, okay, now I'm seeing them, you know, it's like, okay, we've imitated these guys for a couple of years. Now we're doing our own thing. And that's when you kind of, find your own voice and it's like, okay, these guys are going to stick around or know all they know how to do is copy whatever the latest band is doing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's, um, and so you have to, uh, you have to let artists develop, right? There is, there is no means for development. Um, There's not in the classical world, you know, you might go to a conservatory or something like that, but if you're a composer, there's not a lot of, there's not a whole, whole lot of opportunity to develop by getting your stuff performed by an orchestra or um, small chamber ensembles, because, you know, unless you can corral a bunch of students to do it for free, or maybe you win a competition or something like that, that's a whole other set of problems because what mm-hmm. if you, win? <laughs> you know, how can you possibly develop? And so a lot of people sort of get left in the dust or they just have to go to teaching. And whenever you start teaching in the conservatory, you really don't have as much time to write your own stuff. Or if you're in a band, there's no, there's not one dollar that's going to be given to you to help develop your sound. Yeah, you, out of the gate, with, like the killers with Hot Fuss, or that's it. And if Hot Fuss doesn't do the numbers that Hot Fuss does, or you don't get the sneaker deal, or whatever, then you're done, and that's it. And by the way, you can't go sign other contracts because you signed a four album deal with them and they won't let you out of it. <laughs> exactly. So you're just stuck in limbo forever. Um, and speaking of. Yeah, and speaking of film scores, I know our uh, time is short here. Who are a few uh, film composers who you enjoy? What are a few names? Because I, especially since I'm doing writing most of the time, I'll just like listening to Ennio Morricone or I don't know. Well, we were talking at the Lincoln Fellowship about Arvo Pert as well. That is not, he's not a film score guy, but um, what should I be listening to in the background for the next masterpiece that I write? I would say, well, okay, but Ar- Arvo Parrot is so good for you because oh, yeah. this is of your orthodox nature. and Yeah. <laughs> brooding. I like the brooding. You know, I, I, I need to also mention that I did, in preparation for this interview, I did listen to the music of your people, Finlandia. <laughs> That's perfect. Yeah, but, Sibelius is, is the, my boy. Yeah, but, um, you know, Parrot's great because... Um, he and Philip Glass of the of the people who are doing a lot of work like that in the seventies and eighties or whatever, they are definitely the most um, borrowed from <laughs> right. film music. I mean, they they really really are. But uh, look, I love Morricone because of the sound. I love um, the best living composer, uh, film or not film, is John Williams. He's oh just, yeah, he just turned ninety. Wow, he's the best in the world right now. I I think that's indisputable. Um. I really like Hans Zimmer whenever Hans Zimmer writes his stuff. Mm-hmm. There's he's got his factory of people and on. A- and you can tell <laughs> you can tell if he's uh, taking a per- personal interest in it or not. Yeah. And I, I get it. You know, he's doing the tour thing. He's doing BMW ads. He's doing interview like he's doing the the Hollywood reporter roundtable stuff. He's 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 doing all that thing. But um, I mean the last great one that he did in my view was interstellar um, because he's one of these guys that's able to really apply the uh, uh, 
the total maximal aesthetic uh, potential of the computer to sound making. And it's larger than life, and it sounds amazing. He did this with Dune because he also was heavily involved in the Dune soundtrack, too. You really do get a lot of that um, totally immersive soundscape, sound world, quote-unquote, type stuff. Um, but uh, a lot of the uh, of the other guys that are living now that are still doing it, because John Williams is kind of retired from doing actual films, um, you know, they're just doing what we call the, the God farts, which is just a... <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, you know, or they just get lazy and they're just kind of doing um, what I call the British TV drama ripoff stuff that every every score on Netflix sounds like Downton Abbey. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, and that's just I mean, this is what I mean by nobody has anybody to look up up to, because a lot of the modern filmmaking, they don't necessarily want to John Williams score. They say that. But there's also the problem of like, look, a lot of these guys that are in the film composition world they can't do what john Wayne. they don't know how to orchestrate a lot of them are former band guys uh-huh. the, here this is the juicy stuff i'm going to trash a, a living composer right now um there's a uh, the gal from florence and the machine who i loved her band but she did a project recently that um that was about uh, the making of the godfather is a paramount plus thing and she doesn't know what she's doing with an orchestra I'm sorry. She, she she has no clue. Things were orchestrated. You like you could hear the problems of how she didn't know what instruments to choose in the correct ranges to get across the idea that I know she wanted. There are just fundamental um, things you can do with certain instruments that make it that characteristic orchestra sound. And if you don't know what those characteristics are, or if you don't know how to manipulate them correctly, your score is not going to sound good, or it's going to sound drab, or it's just going to sound, sound weird and off. This would be akin to going into the recording studio and like plugging your uh, guitar into uh, a bass amp. You know, it's like, like, it's like, no, that, that's the, that's the wrong tool for your guitar. You need to go over the Marshall Plexi and rock that thing. You don't put it into the bass amp, you, you Neanderthal. Right. And, or, or if you're trying to be experimental, maybe you do because you're just going to be weird because you're in a, a strange hipster band, but she wasn't trying to do that in this project. She just didn't know what she's doing. So she just is forced to gloss over it by adding other instruments and just kind of turning the score down that. So all that to say, a lot of people just don't know what they're doing. And that's frustrating because if they came from a band, they haven't spent the time that you would spend listening to the orchestral, listening over and over to Finlandia and, and, <laughs> and all the other music of your people. And, and, um, and then learning the, for lack of a better term, it's, it's sort of like a science of how to do music right. And this doesn't mean that I'm saying you don't do you don't get inspired or you don't get experimental, but it's, it's gotta be a lot more than just like smoking a joint going like, I just don't feel the music, man. Like that's how I play. No, you do not sound better when you're high. (laughs) (laughs) Crazy musicians can't take them anywhere. Well, Stephen Limbaugh, we're going to include links of course in the show notes. Where can people find you on the information superhighway, or as I like to call it, the World Wide Web. Yes. Uh, so um, I've got an Instagram account, just my name, Stephen with a PH Limbaugh. I also uh, have a website. And from there, you can sort of go find links to 
what I do, but then also just type my name and piano into YouTube and you'll see a bunch of piano performances of me just ripping. (laughs) (laughs) Killing it. All right, Stephen Limbaugh, thanks so much for being on. Uh, Hopefully we will meet up again before too long uh, so we can chat about music more and politics and all that other stuff. All righty, thank you so much. Please check out Stephen's stuff. Uh, just to let you know, the last piece is actually my favorite. It's uh, also from the CD Pants, Millennial Variations 1. And in the middle there, I had to throw in his version of Anchors Away, being a Navy guy. So thanks very much, Stephen. Uh, check out his stuff. And that is it for the show. Uh, once again, Thursday night, Columbus, Ohio. We're going to be talking school choice. It's going to get nuts. Absolutely crazy. So um, I don't know, bring any mood altering drugs you need to get the full effect of this, um, but check that out. Once again, links in the show notes to everything, Stephen Limbaugh's music and his website and um, my very important appearance in beautiful Columbus, Ohio. Thanks for listening. Please uh, remember to subscribe, rate, rank, review, all that good stuff. And I'll talk to you next week. And next week's deal will be a recording of this Columbus event. Uh, We'll try to capture the magic in audio form. Talk to you then. Ricochet. Join the conversation.